too many papers up here today. All right, well, it's been a while since I've been up here, uh, and it is good to be back. Hopefully you feel the same way. Um, and uh, we are uh, finishing up this uh, short three-week series on the mission of the church, and so today uh, we are going to look at the upward mission of the church and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. So that's the fifth book of the Bible. Uh, the end of the Pentateuch or the Torah, and chapter 30 is near the end of the book. So if you go there, if you get to Joshua, you've gone a little bit too far, and uh, just turn back to you get to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And uh, we are going to be pushed for time today, so I'm just warning you, we've had a lot uh, going on. But let me go ahead and read this, and please listen carefully as this is God's word, this is also the last sermon of Moses. And uh, so it has its own significance in that way. I'll talk about that in a minute. And this is Moses speaking to the people right before they enter the promised land. He says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, and the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is, is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and death, life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. 
I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that God swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We know what the Great Commission demands of us, but we rarely do it. And we know what the Great Commandments are, but we are often not obedient. Lord, forgive us. Prepare us to be your disciples. Teach us, instill in us, motivate us to be faithful to your word, knowing that everything we need for faith and practice comes from you. We need to know what it means to love you with all our heart and soul. We need to know how to hold fast to you. We need to know what it means that you are our life. Thank you that today we come to learn at the feet of the great prophet Moses, who chooses these words as his last words, as his best words, as the words of wisdom we need to live in accordance with our chief end, to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. In 1860, that's the year Abraham Lincoln was elected president, a 23-year-old named Milton Bradley invented the game of life. On a red and ivory checkerboard, I know we have a lot of board gamers here, so this is for you. On a red and ivory checkerboard of 64 squares, players start on a square labeled infancy and end usually, but not always, at happy old age. The game of life required you to make decisions. Most players try to go to college, slowly heading towards happiness, but even when you're one square away, you can still end up in ruin, passed out, drunk, and drooling on the floor of a seedy-looking tavern where death darkens the door, disguised as a bill collector in a bulky black overcoat and a strangely sinister stovepipe hat. Curiously, two directions almost guarantee that you will lose the game. One is going to prison, and the other is going into politics. Bradley's game rewards the virtues that lead to wealth and success. The good squares are honesty, bravery, and perseverance. The bad squares are poverty, idleness, and disgrace. And the person who wins is the one who gets to happy old age first. And that was the game for 100 years. And then on the 100th anniversary in 1960, the Milton Bradley Company released a commemorative anniversary edition which bears almost no resemblance to the 19th century namesake. Bradley's game about vice virtue and the pursuit of happiness was reinvented as a lesson in consumerism. In the 60s version, <clears throat> that's the one I grew up with, 
In this version, the box is filled with fake money, $7 million of fake money, as well as fake automobile insurance and fake stock certificates. Apparently, this life is all about paperwork. Players filled tiny plastic station wagons with even tinier pink and blue plastic mommies and daddies, and they have pink and blue plastic babies. But this game of life is relentlessly cash conscience. In this version, you don't die. <coughs> you just retire. And the most important squares are marked payday. In this game, whoever finishes with the most money wins. Now, that version was updated every decade until about 10 years ago when Milton Bradley released the new game of life, Twists and Turns. And in the 2008 version, life is meaningless. This is the game's selling point. It has no goals. The blurb on the box says, a thousand ways to live your life you choose. Money is still a big part of the game, but there's no cash. Each player receives a Visa card to keep track of points. And you get the same number of points for scuba diving or donating a kidney or getting a PhD. In this version of the game, there is no square marked finish. It's all pointless. The game is now owned by the Hasbro company, and there are about 20 different versions. And you can even go back and buy the earlier editions. And to my chagrin, the 1960s edition that I grew up with is now called the Vintage Edition. Well, Moses has a much different take on the game of life. According to the prophet, life is not meaningless. It's not about the pursuit of happiness. It's not about finishing with the most money, and it's not about longing for retirement. Life is about God. Specifically, it's about loving God, because God is life itself. Hang on to that thought. So we're going to be coming back to it. As I said, today we're finishing up a three-week series on the mission of the church. Two weeks ago, uh, Reverend Wong preached on the actual mission of the church and told us the mission of the church was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples who follow Jesus. And that's summarized in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the primary way to obey the Great Commission, by the way, that's actually part of the motto of the PCA. You may not have known that. It's faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. So what's the primary way for us to be obedient to the Great Commission? Well, simply enough, it's found by being obedient to the Great Commandment. You've heard this before. It appears many times in Scripture. One of them is in Luke 10. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. Sounds simple. It's actually really hard, but it sounds simple. Well, last week, Reverend Dorst preached on the outward 
mission of the church and showed us a number of ways that we can love our neighbors. And I trust that you now have that part all figured out. Praise God. So today, I'll be preaching on the upward mission of the church. And we're going to focus on the what, why, and how of loving God, the first part of the great commandment. And since it's been ages since we were in the Old Testament, okay, it's been three weeks, but thought we might dip back in and we're going to go to the book of Deuteronomy, specifically to the last will and testament of Moses in Deuteronomy 30. See, the life and work of Moses is drawing to an end. He's going to die soon and he knows it. And he gathers the Hebrew people on the plains of Moab, and he wants to tell them one more time how they should live. He wants them to hear all that he's saying and to take it to heart, and it's a powerful sermon. And to really understand why this is important, you have to know that for the most part, these are not the people that he led out of Egypt. They turned out to be an unbelieving generation who accepted the covenant, but due to disbelief, they ended up dying in the desert. But now it's their children and their grandchildren that are about to cross the Jordan River and enter the promised land. However, due to his own sin, Moses won't be going with them. So it's more than his last words. It's a farewell to the people that he has led for more than 40 years. And now the covenant must be renewed since it's largely a new group of people. So in this closing address, Moses is reminding the people of the terms of the covenant which God makes with his chosen and loved people. And that's the big picture. and That's actually the main point of the text. But today I'm going to break one of my preaching rules and I'm going to focus in on one of the secondary points. And uh, not the renewal of the covenant, but the requirement of the covenant. The entire book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons Moses preached at the end of his life. And when you're about to die, there's no tangents. You get right to the point. You only say things that are the most important things, the most important things you've ever learned in your whole life. So here at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses gets to the most important things he could tell anyone, and in some ways, the most important things that he's ever said. And this sermon culminates with three words, therefore, choose life. And compressed in those three words is a lifetime of wisdom and prophetic preaching. Deuteronomy 30 is the closing section of the last sermon preached by Israel's greatest Old Testament prophet and preacher. And Moses preaches as a dying man to an Israel who will enter the promised land without him. The sermon is riveting. It grips our attention and commands our hearts. And as with every major event in Moses' life and ministry, he starts with the reality of God. The reality of God, that should be the first blank in your outline. And I'm not going to read all the verses again. just going to pick out uh, some key verses here. Verse 6 the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And then verse 10, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments 
and his statutes that are written in this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Moses says that if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, that's a phrase he uses 16 times in this chapter. That is, if you're believers, justified by faith, loving him, walking with him, keeping faith with him, then you'll live. Otherwise, you die. You can't avoid that choice because God alone is real. He is truth with a capital T. Moses preaches under this awesome sense of the transcendent reality of God. In Deuteronomy 7, he says, Know, for, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. You ever heard that phrase used about God? He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The Lord your God is a jealous God who will not share his affections with another. He is the all or nothing God. The great prayer of the Hebrew people comes from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's not simply the only God who exists. He's the one defining reality of the universe. And this awesome sense of God means that Moses applies the reality of God not just to his people but to all the quirks of culture and to everything that they're facing. Uh, in their life. His preaching is engaged with the world because his God is the creator of the world. See, Moses understands the culture of Egypt from which they have come and the culture of Canaan to which they are going. He knows about the seductions of money, sex, and power in Egypt. He knows about the lure of the false gods the sexy Asherim and the virile Baals in Canaan. He's read their prospectus. He sees their marketing. He knows what they offer. He's seen how they worshiped. He understands their prosperity gospel. And he knows that they too promise life and good and all sorts of blessings. But he also knows they can't perform what they promise. They can't perform what they promise. So you not only need to know the right God, the one living and true God, but you have to put your faith in that God, and you need to do it today. If not, it's false gods for you. And Moses knows that, which is why he emphasizes the urgency of faith. The urgency of faith, verses 11 through 16. I'm going to jump right to verse 15 and read 15 and 16. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. We live in a culture where everyone has their say. I can press the interactive buttons and register my view on television. 
I can set up a blog and proclaim my views on anything and everything to the world, where the most friendly thing we can say to someone when we meet them is, what do you think? But God doesn't need to know what we think. He wants us to know what he thinks. It's one of the main reasons he's given us the scriptures. Why? What is the purpose of the scripture? It's to make men and women wise for salvation through faith in Christ, 2 Timothy 3.15, and thereby to transform them into the likeness of Christ. Because scripture is in the business of transforming people, then it needs to be preached and taught by people who are themselves being transformed by scripture. Moses didn't just preach the covenant. The covenant gripped him. It changed him. It transformed him. He's this sort of embodied covenant keeper. And that's how we need to be with God's word today. Moses understands that faith is always the response of today, never the response of yesterday. Today or this day is one of the great themes of Moses' preaching. It appears four times just in this chapter. And to have length of days in the land, verse 20, depends on the response of today. And the thing about today is it's always today. This gives Moses' preaching an urgency. Every time he preaches, it's today. And he calls for a response today. Israel is called over and over again to enter into covenant with God today and then today and then again today as long as it is called today. It is the constant reminder of Moses' preaching. Deuteronomy 4, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time. This covenant with God is brought into the present by the urgency of Moses' preaching today. And that's the model for urgent preaching every day that's called today. The scriptures that weren't originally written to us were nonetheless written for us who are alive today. And Moses makes that clear, both to them and to us. Deuteronomy 26, this day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you, and that you are to keep all his commandments, and he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor, high above all nations that he has made, and you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he has promised. Deuteronomy 4, 6, 11, 26, and 30 essentially have the same message. You need to respond to God in faith today. Now, all that, which I've read, I actually cut some of that out, but does any of it sound familiar? The apostle Peter borrows it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 
you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What Moses said, Peter said, you have declared today that the Lord is your God, and the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his own possession. The urgent theme of today is picked up throughout the scriptures. Psalm 95, just a few examples. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The writer of Hebrews develops that in Hebrews 3. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Apostle Paul uses it about five times in his letters, this same today urgency. One example is in his letter to the Corinthians, and he's imploring them to be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Every scripture calls us today, in some way, shape, or form, to repent and believe again this day. For the Christian, just as much as for the non-Christian. And sort of the theological point behind all this is, you know, I may have chosen yesterday, but the litmus test of whether or not I really chose yesterday is, will I make the same choice again today? Otherwise, the choice I made yesterday was shallow and empty, and I end up disproving my own profession of faith. And that's easier said than done. We don't want to admit that, but our hearts are easily turned away, just like the Israelites that Moses was preaching to. He was well aware of the stubbornness of people, the stubbornness of people, verses 17 and 18. It says, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Their hearts will turn away, and Moses knows that. If we go back a chapter, we see he already predicts the exile. He tells them that's going to happen. It's about 800 years away, but he's already telling them it's going to happen. One of the things that makes Moses such a powerful preacher is he's never misled by a warm smile. He knows the human heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm easily misled by the externals. After all, the men and women sitting in front of me this morning, that's you. All look so pleasant, so friendly, so religious, so respectable, so sweetly reasonable. Sometimes. And if there's anything wrong, I'm sure that I can persuade you with rational argument. If I can get my message clear and understandable, then my preaching will change you. If I teach you the Bible, you'll get it, and all will be well. I can dream, can't I? I mean, I ought to know better because I know my own heart. Moses understands their hearts. Again and again, he anticipates their reaction. Do not say to yourself, do not say in your heart, beware lest you say. He knows this is exactly what they'll say. He knows their unbelieving hearts, that they will indeed say this, and he anticipates it. 
Moses understands their pride. Deuteronomy 8, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. He knows their pride. This is exactly what they will say. And Moses anticipates it. He understands their stubbornness. Early in the book of Deuteronomy, he retells the story of their desert journeys and presses home their stubborn guilt. One example, right from Deuteronomy 1. Yet in spite of this word, the words of reassurance and grace they had received, he says, you did not believe the Lord your God. God spoke words of grace with great force, and they simply didn't believe him. More forcefully, he preaches to the sin of their hearts, Deuteronomy 9. Do not say in your heart, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. Know therefore the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. He doesn't mince words. He sort of lays it right out there. Has it changed? Well, if we jump to the New Testament, Stephen, the first martyr, echoes Moses in Acts chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And like Moses, like Stephen, we must never be misled into thinking that just because people are religious, their hearts are right with God. We're not, neither were they. So with that good news, when are we getting to the loving God part? Well, that comes next. Because if we understand the reality of who God is, and if we understand the urgency of exercising faith in Christ, if we understand the stubbornness of our own hearts, then what's it going to take to get sinful people like us to really love God? And so Moses ends by reminding them of the wonder of grace. The wonder of grace. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. You may dwell in the land the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. This final point is most important. Moses never forgets the wonders of grace as he offers Christ to the people. Jesus said in John chapter 5, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses was, in anticipation and foreshadowing, a preacher of grace and therefore a preacher of Christ. He's already told the Israelites in verse 14 that not only can they understand the covenant, they can actually do it. It's possible for this word to so dwell in their heart and come out of their mouth that they'll be able to do it. That is to say, they can be faithful to and love the covenant God. Well, how is that possible? Surely the, one of the main points of the law is given so that we realize that we're unable to keep the law. It exposes our sin. So what does Moses mean now? 
Well, given that Jesus says Moses spoke of him, it seems that Moses was, in principle, offering them Christ. That is, he's calling them to believe the God of promise. And whenever an Old Testament saint believed the promises, in principle, he believed in the Christ in whom all those promises would be fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. That Moses is preaching grace is confirmed in these verses. He sets before them life and death, but he doesn't challenge them. He doesn't say, therefore, try harder. Do your best to keep the law and love God. He says, therefore, choose life. And the choice Moses sets before them is not a choice between bad works and good works, or between half-hearted works and whole-hearted works. It's a choice between works and grace. Therefore, choose life means therefore choose grace. Trust the God of promise who is your life. Choose him. The great paradox of Deuteronomy is that the story goes on when it should end. It ought to end with tears, you know, with the curtain coming down time and time and time again. It ought to end in the desert. It ought to end with the golden calf. It ought to end in exile. And every time the story goes on. And so although there's a lot of tears along the way, it doesn't end in tears. How is this so? Because the God who made the promise is the one who will keep the promise. Now, how can he keep the promise? Because the promise is conditional. If you're faithful and loyal, you'll live long in the land, but if you're not, you won't. How can the promise be so certain and yet at the same time conditional? In the Old Testament, the great paradox of faith is how is God going to do it? And the answer must be that he himself will somehow fulfill the conditions of the covenant so that he can make certain the promises of the covenant. And I take it that Moses only saw this sort of dimly, hazily, vaguely. The prophets after Moses also searched and inquired as the spirit of Christ within them spoke of the coming sufferings and the subsequent glory. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it's letting us know that the day is coming, that one day a man would obey the covenant. Romans 5, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And his sin-bearing, curse-bearing work would make it possible for hearts to be circumcised in order to fulfill the promise of Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And so Moses is preaching Christ in foreshadowing and in promise. And those who believe the promise in principle believed in Christ. And this is why he says they can do the word he preaches. The Apostle Paul quotes this passage in Romans 10 in the context of faith in Christ. He says, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. 
That is the word of faith that we proclaim. He goes on. That's why he says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Mark Riff's favorite verse, Romans 10.10. He's quoting Moses. He's not making it up. And this word of faith meant that the righteousness is achieved not by works of righteousness, but by believing and confessing that Jesus is Lord. Paul makes it clear that in the word Moses preached, Christ was offered to the people. And in some ways, the choice that Moses offers them is obvious. You know, I read about this irreverent comic, uh, and he had this sketch about the church. And in it, he, he imagines this absurd church party where everyone is asked, would you like cake or death? Not surprisingly, everyone chose cake. That's Moses' choice. It's a little bit like that. Would you like blessing, long life in the land, prosperity? Or would you like a nasty, short, brutish life in the land followed by exile and death? It's kind of a no-brainer. And yet Moses knows they will choose death because he knows the human heart. And he knows that only God can change that. And Moses still believes in grace. Again and again, Moses speaks of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how he ends this chapter. He believes God will fulfill this promise, not only the promise of the land, but the promise to which the land points, the new heavens and the new earth where Christ dwells in righteousness. Have you been overcome by the wonder of grace? Has the grace of God given to stubborn people who choose death over life gripped your soul? So unless you really get grace, loving God will just be another Christian chore. Unless you, uh, grace really amazes you, loving God will just be another hard challenge. Without the wonder of grace, even if we still believe, we just become Pharisees. We do all the right stuff, but there's little joy because we've forgotten God who is life itself. Grace doesn't just save us for the next life. It saves us for this life. It gives us life. It enables us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. And that sounds so much better. Now, how do I do that? How do, I, how do I love God? After God has a single expectation of you, he spells it out repeatedly throughout the scriptures. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. He makes it clear that he wants all of you. He wants to be invested in your relationship with him. And so what are the daily choices that you can make to love God? Thankfully, you're made in his image, you're a reflection of him. So you can think about that simply by asking yourself, how do I hope to be loved? You already have what it takes to create an extraordinary relationship with God. Let's very quickly look at the ways God wants you, God wants your love. First, he says, love with all your heart. Loving God with all your heart means reserving the best of your affections for him. Make time each day to build a relationship with him through prayer, by talking with him. He wants to know you and be known by you. Share your joys with him. Run to him with your big news at work. 
Sing to him at the top of your lungs on a great day. Fill him in on your private hopes. Tell him how much you appreciate him. But also talk to him when you're down. Cry to him when you're overwhelmed. Admit when you're jealous. Be honest when you're disappointed or angry, even if you're angry with him. Share your fears. Apologize when you've messed up. Ask for forgiveness. And then let him talk. He has things to say, and he wants a relationship that goes both ways. Listen to his stories. Listen to people who speak his truth. Each day, set aside time to get to know God. Second, love uh, with all your soul. And that means being dedicated to him. Ask him, how do you want me to spend my time, energy, money, talents? What can I do with my resources to honor you? Find out what God values and value those things. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So when you invite God into all areas of your life, he'll show you how to live in a way that pleases him. He may ask you to shift your spending habits from self-indulgence to those less fortunate. He may encourage you to change your attitude about work. He'll probably ask you to find friends who support your relationship with him. He'll urge you to forgive and love people the way he forgives and loves you. Third, love with all your mind. Loving God with your mind means backing up your passion with knowledge. He wants you to use the reasoning ability he gave you to understand him more. So ask questions. Don't be afraid to wrestle with his commands and your own doubts and seek his answers. Read the Bible and find out what the words mean. Listen to the experiences of others. That means showing up, Bible studies, Sunday school, community groups. Ask him for guidance. Make an effort to find out who he is. Discover what he likes and he dislikes. Loving God with all your mind means directing your thoughts to valuable things. And when you focus on faith, hope, and love, instead of fear, hate, and laziness, your heart and actions follow. So each day, wonder about God. And last, love with all your strength. This means persevering for God each day. To what lengths will you go for the one you love? Genuine love demands strength and courage like nothing else. It means you muster your resources to protect your relationship with God every day. It means that you're willing to change and sacrifice things to have him. It means being honest, and sometimes it means doing the unpopular thing. It means listening to truth and holding yourself accountable. Loving God strongly sometimes is admitting you're wrong and making a change. It's asking people to help you protect your relationship with God when you don't feel like it. It's avoiding the things that take your attention and love away from him. And sometimes it's getting up and trying again after you've fallen and failed. Each day be willing to fight for your relationship with God. People without a new heart, even those in church, obey God to get things to get forgiveness, to get blessings, to get heaven. People with a new heart obey God just to get God. So what does that look like? Let me show you. I know we're long. I appreciate your patience. Two of my favorite characters in the Gospels are Simeon and Anna. There are two older folks who see Jesus as a baby when his parents bring him to the temple to be dedicated. And I want to end today with Anna. Let me read her story. Luke 2. 
And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Three verses. That's all she gets. Her name, Anna, means grace and favor. And in Luke's brief description of this elderly widow, we recognize a woman who reflects all the characteristics of her name. Her husband's death brings her to a crossroads, and God sets before her a choice. One road leads to death, the other road leads to life. Tears and grief cover both roads. Both roads promise excruciating pain and hard places. Bitterness, anger, and disappointment pave the death road. Purpose, joy, and life push through the grid of grief and pave the life road. Anna chooses life. And when Anna chooses life, she chooses to love the Lord her God, to obey his voice, and to hold fast to him. She recognized that he was her life, and every day held opportunities for her to be a blessing to others. And this choice opened up unexpected opportunities to give life to anyone who crosses her path. Widowhood is Anna's platform for glorifying God. I suspect that Anna's journey into a life of prayer, fasting, and worship may have started before her husband's death, and it just deepened as she processed his death and had to learn to live as a single woman. We meet her after decades of choosing life and watch as she immediately recognizes Mary's baby to be the long-awaited Messiah. Her impact on the family of God can't be minimized. The temple is the center of activity for the Jewish people, and Anna is a fixture in the temple. Most likely everyone knew Anna, you know, they expected her to be present there, present for her, their, their own times of joy and sorrow. And I imagine, it doesn't say we only have three verses, so this is my sanctified imagination being imposed on you. I imagine Anna coming alongside women just when they need some encouragement to go the extra mile in loving their husbands or to give that extra dose of patience when parenting a strong-willed child. Not that you would know anything about that. It's likely Anna didn't hold back if a young mother needed an extra pair of hands to settle a tired child or comfort a crying baby. A true prophetess needs to be bold and confident in the message of God's word. I don't see Anna as a shrinking violet. Instead of expecting others to serve her because of her loss, she offers her life as a sacrifice of praise in all the mundane moments. Anna's habit of prayer and fasting helped equip her to come alongside Simeon, fulfilling her design as a helper in the church. Having a woman like Anna in the congregation is every pastor's dream. But today, consider how we're on the other side of what Anna longed for. Jesus, the Messiah, lives in each of those who love him. Anna's story is not about Anna, 
but about the God of promise who kept the promise of his covenant, that he would never leave her, that he would always hold her tight, that he would keep his promise to send the Messiah. And today we face the same choices of Anna. Her God, the Father of our Savior, invites us to taste and see that he is good. We can experience what Anna longed for, the presence of Jesus in everyday moments. We have the privilege of displaying to those who cross our paths the life-giving help and hope that comes from knowing Christ. We don't see rules and obligation in Anna's life. We see a woman who's embraced the broken place in her life as an opportunity to offer life to others. Every day is made up of hundreds of little moments that are opportunities to love God. And every moment matters. When loving moments are strung together, they form days. When loving days are strung together, they become months. When loving months are strung together, they stretch into years and decades. And over time, years of love for God make up one extraordinary love story. Just ask Anna. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that we usually love ourselves way more than we love you. We would rather be in charge of how our lives turn out than to trust you to shape us into something useful and beautiful. Give us a greater desire to know your word, to trust that every situation of our lives, even the broken ones, comes from your hand. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our fears. Work in each of us the wonder of your grace that we might love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind. Teach us to respond with an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises, knowing that you will keep those promises and draw us into an extraordinary love story with your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive the Lord's blessing from one of the great verses of the Old Testament known as the Shema. This was what was written in every Jewish household. This is what they put on their foreheads and tied to their arms and hands. This is what they learned from a very early age. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. God bless you. We'll see you next week.